welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Nitai Daitel, and I'm a senior program officer for the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us for this very important conversation on such a historic day. We are delighted to partner with the Penn Project on the Future of U.S.-China Relations, which is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania's Center for the Study of Contemporary China to put on this important program. The United States and China are the world's two largest emitters of greenhouse gases, with our two countries accounting for nearly 45% of total global carbon emissions in 2019. With the impact of global warming already being felt in storms, fires, and other phenomena around the world, simply put, the world cannot meet the challenge of climate change without aggressive action from both countries. As this momentous year in US-China relations and climate diplomacy unfolds, the National Committee will convene a series of programs discussing the intersection of climate change and the environment with US-China relations, today's program being the first one. We are joined here today by four terrific scholars, all of whom are fellows of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program. I will only briefly introduce them now as their full bios are posted on our event page, the link being posted in the chat. First, our moderator. Joanna Lewis is Provost Distinguished Associate Professor of Energy and Environment and Director of the Science, Technology and International Affairs Program at Georgetown University. She is also a faculty affiliate in the China Energy Group at the US Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Dr. Lewis holds master's and doctoral degrees in energy and resources from the University of California, Berkeley, and a bachelor's degree in environmental science and policy from Duke University. On to our panelists. Angel Xu is an assistant professor in the public policy department and energy, environment, and ecology program at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she explores the relationship between science and policy. She holds a bachelor's degree in biology and political science from Wake Forest University, a master's degree in environmental policy from the University of Cambridge, and a doctorate in environmental policy from Yale University. Next, Jonas Nam is Assistant Professor of Energy, Resources, and Environment at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, specializing in the intersection of economic and industrial policy, energy policy, and environmental politics. He received his bachelor's degree in social and political science from the University of Cambridge, his master's degree in political science and Asia-Pacific studies from the University of Toronto, and his PhD in political science from MIT. Last, we have Alex Wong, professor of law at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a leading expert on environmental law and the law and politics of China. Previously, Professor Wong was a senior attorney for the Natural Resources Defense Council based in Beijing. He received his bachelor's degree in biology from Duke University and his law degree from NYU. Our three panelists are next generation fellows of the aforementioned Penn Project on the Future of US-China Relations and developed papers on today's topic last fall. If you have not seen those papers, you can find the link to them in the chat as well. This afternoon, we will first have a discussion amongst our experts and leave ample time for audience questions. To ask a question, please click the Q&A icon located at the bottom of your screen and type it in. Please include your name and affiliation and specify to whom you're directing your question if applicable. Please note that the chat function is disabled. We will only use it to post resources and links pertinent to the discussion. Also, please note that this meeting is on the record and being recorded to be posted on our website later. Now I'd like to turn it over to Joanna and I look forward to the conversation. Joanna, take it away. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today to moderate this discussion with three friends, colleagues, and fellow PIP fellows doing excellent work on China and US-China climate and energy relations. Uh, and of course, today is the first day of the Leaders Climate Summit. Um, and we heard President Xi Jinping speak right after President Biden this morning, uh, for the most part reaffirming China's commitment to its existing climate targets. Uh, and of course, Special Envoy John Kerry was in China last week to meet with his counterpart, Xi Jinping, following which we saw the release of the first US-China joint climate statement in over four years. So today our panelists will share their perspectives on the role of US-China climate cooperation within the broader global climate challenge and also how it fits into the broader US-China relationship and offer some proposals for the way forward. And my job is to ask them the tough questions. So let's dive right in. Uh, I wanna start by taking a moment to assess where do we stand? Um, you know, we're now five and a half years after the Paris summit. How are we doing? And, and how does today's summit fit into that context? And were the last four years, you know, completely lost due to the Trump administration? Angel, do you wanna kick us off? Sure, thank you so much, Joanna, and thank you so much to the National Committee for organizing this panel, and it's always really fun to see Joanna, Alex, and Jonas on a panel. Um, so, th so that's a really tough question because um, we know that the climate science is really clear. We only have nine years left to have global emissions by 2030 so that we have a reasonable chance of hitting net zero emissions by 2050 to keep that 1.5 degrees Celsius goal within reach, and that was what countries all agreed to for the Paris Agreement. And so under the Trump administration, what we know happened in the first days of Trump's leadership, he withdrew the United States from the Paris Agreement, also uh, rolled back the Clean Power Plan, which was a cornerstone of the US policy and Paris pledge. And so um, even though we had seen um, some progress carbon emissions largely due to switching from coal to, to uh, natural gas. Um, during the Trump administration, progress really flatlined, actually went in the opposite direction. We saw emissions increase over that period. And then actually due to COVID-19, the US received a historic drop in emissions largely from the reduction transport emissions. So I would say in terms of the overall emissions, uh, we didn't really see that much progress, actually increased emissions, but then this opportunity to really reset. And I think President Biden has a really solid vision moving forward to, to have those productions stick. So that's um, one. Aspect. I think the second aspect is in terms of political progress on climate change. And I think certainly, as we heard during the summit and in the lead up to the climate summit that's, that started today, I think internationally, there was a lot of trust that was lost when the U.S. withdrew from the Paris Agreement. And so I think um, there's a lot of ground to really be made up on, on that respect, uh, particularly on the Chinese side, uh, not having the U.S. engaged at a level internationally or bilaterally level with China, I think was pretty damaging. Relationship. So, so those are some of the, the threads that I think um, we'll be able to, to dig in further in this conversation. Thanks, Alex. Did you want to jump in? Yeah, and and it's worth uh, uh, so that's a great overview of where things stand from Angel, and it's it's worth just reminding us um, for those who may not follow this all the time how the Paris Agreement is meant to work, right? So we're uh, the Paris Agreement was passed in 2015, and prior to the Paris Agreement, the the model of a climate treaty was one with binding targets for some countries, primarily the developed countries, and then the developing countries didn't have any obligations and this is under the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities that the developed countries will kind of take the the lead 
but because you have that partial um, partial participation, particularly of not having China subject and, and other large uh, developing country emitters subject to targets that created uh, friction. And the goal under Paris was to have basically universal participation, but the, the requirement that many people may know is, is mainly a procedural one, that people need have agreed to submit plans and to do other procedural things. And, but the plan itself is up to each country to, to determine themselves. They're called nationally determined contributions. And so because of that structure, you were able to get everyone in. And then it, it's structured as a pledge and review system where the idea is that you sort of every few years you check and see how we're doing. You do a, a so-called stock take. And then there's a period uh, after five years where everyone is supposed to submit new and presumably more ambitious plans. And so on, on the how are we doing portion, uh, the science has already chimed in and said we're not even close to doing well enough. Uh, and, and there was an IPCC report on this uh, a few years ago. And then last year was the time under the Paris Agreement when everyone was supposed to submit new plans, again, pre presumably more ambitious plans. But because of COVID, that was delayed until this year. And so part of what, you know, the way that the, the system works is that you have these periodic meetings, some within the UN system, some started by others. And each meeting is an occasion for countries to kind of show off some new plan and to get praise. And, and through that process, uh, it's a way to kind of shine a light on people doing well. And so you, you had a UN meeting in December where uh, you had some new announcements from China and from others. And then this meeting today and tomorrow is one that Biden has set up that is meant to do the same thing, to promote promote the U.S.'s NDC and to give uh, lots of other countries a chance to, to submit plans, which uh, has ha happened uh, to some extent already. Can I can I push you a little further on this? I mean, I, I think, you know, many have uh, said that joint U.S. and Chinese leadership was essential, you know, to the Paris Agreement in the first place. Right. And really mobilizing global action through their bilateral conversations and, and beyond. So, you know, but what is really the mantle of global leadership look like now or, or what does that really mean, you know, going forward in the context of climate? You know, is, is the U.S. back at the helm or, or where, where do you think we are in that yeah. sense? Yeah, I can take a crack at this, but I'd be interested to see what other uh, people uh, think on this, right? So, um, the, there, there is clearly a sort of jockeying for the mantle of climate leadership, right? So, I think China last year, when they announced their um, in September, they announced their twenty sixty carbon neutrality target. You know, I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I, I'm sure it had the timing of it had something to do with the fact that there was likely to be a new administration. And it was a way for certainly China to at least control the agenda and to show that they were commanding the agenda on climate change. And and they did that. I think they were very successful in uh, making a big step forward in global conversations about cl climate. And they earned a lot of goodwill for themselves, I think. Uh, this meeting is clearly, among other things, an attempt by the US to reassert its leadership. And I was looking at the Global Times headlines yesterday and what's funny is that, you know, the messaging from the Global Times, you know, you, everyone I'm sure has their own theories about how closely that meshes with uh, official propaganda uh, messaging. But the, the headline on this was, uh, you know, very clearly sort of making it seem as though none of this uh, was about U.S. leadership, that the meet, she's participation in the meeting was actually a sign that U.S. leadership had had failed somehow. 
And it doesn't really explain why, but that was the headline and the clear intended uh, message. So, so I, th I think there's going to be this jockeying for reputation. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's a good thing, right? It's, it's, a, it's one factor that will help each country you know, create some impetus within the political economy of each country, maybe to push for some breakthroughs and, and push through some vested interests. Yeah, Yanis. Yeah, I mean, sort of if I wear my German hat for a second, um, sort of from the European perspective, I think where the US right now is sort of where we often are just before China releases a new 14th, 15th, 16th, five-year plan, like we sort of have established what we want to do and where we want to go, but we have really as a country not really demonstrated a lot of the concrete steps for how to get there. So we have these goals and we have plans that are being discussed, but they're not passed, they're not signed into law, right? So there's not really a concrete uh, path yet for the US to get there. And I think the Europeans certainly have not forgotten how sort of unreliable the US has been over the last 25 years on this topic. So I think it's really up to the US to sort of demonstrate um, reliability and sustained leadership if people want you know, if, if, if we want to be taken seriously, if competition with China in some way this motivates us to do that and sort of, you know, come to the table in a more sustained way, um, I think that's great. But I don't think sort of, you know, one summit and a $3 trillion infrastructure bill are enough to convince everyone that we're really committed to this yet. I think it'll take a little bit longer than that. Yeah, well, China, oh, go ahead. Oh, if I could just add, I think what's interesting is if you were to ask the Chinese this question about whether or not they now are the de facto leader on climate change, I think they would still demur and say, no, we still expect developed countries to lead on climate change, because if you look at the historic carbon emissions picture, it's Europe and the United States that are historically responsible for the, the vast majority of, of current uh, greenhouse gas or greenhouse gas emissions, even though China is the number one emitter currently. And so it's, it's interesting, right when Trump um, won the election, I was in Morocco for the climate negotiations and you could see this shift and uh, people were just vacated the US pavilion and everyone was in China's corner and really curious to see whether or not China would take up the mantle of climate change leadership. And in my conversations on the sidelines with some of the negotiators, they still were saying, oh no, we still expect uh, US to take the lead. But yeah, the September 2020 announcement at the UNGA was really unprecedented to have, see China just step out uh, without the, the context of a bilateral relationship and not in a climate change summit announce this carbon neutrality goal. And so, yeah, I, I agree with Alex. I think that there is certainly some jockeying that's going around and it'll be really interesting to see how these dynamics um, unfold. I, I just wanna add, I, I really appreciate the fact that we have someone who can wear the European hat in this conversation. So it's not a bunch of Americans singing America's praises, right? Because we do have to remember that just six months ago, the, the broad swath of federal uh, climate actions was very negative, right? Right now we're in the process of rolling back some of these horrendous things that happened in the last administration. And and that it's not just the last administration, right? The US has for a long time been up up and down. Right. And in some ways, the media has often given the Americans uh, a pass, you know, even arguably at Copenhagen. You know, the U.S. wasn't doing that much at that time, but it was all about China being the bad guy. I, I would argue that both were not doing nearly en enough at that at, the, at that time. Um, so so I appreciate that that perspective. Yeah, clearly there is a, a competition, I should say, between China and the United States that in some ways can be constructive. Right. In, in terms of the, the climate challenge. Um, but then, you know, there's many issues in the relationship where we're fundamentally at odds. 
Um, and, you know, I, I'd be interested to hear how you all see the balance there, you know, and, and are these mutually ex exclusive? Um, are there areas where you think competition um, can be in our strategic interest, you know, or are there areas where, where we actually need to be cooperating? I, I can jump yeah, in. Alex, go ahead. Uh, Jonas, you want to go ahead? I, I can come in a second. Uh, okay. Um, well, I mean, I've, I think there's been a lot of discussion among people who follow climate as to what's the right framework, right? Is it, co I guess it's the four C's some people have framed it as, maybe cooperation, coordination, competition, or compulsion, some have added uh, in there. And so, so what is it? You know, a lot of the climate discussion has been about cooperation, right? And, um, uh, and more and more people are talking about competition, right? That's, that's uh, in some ways not surprising because very much the administration is framing it as uh, a much more competitive uh, dynamic. So, you know, the, the piece that I, one of the pieces I've just written is about just the potential positive aspects of, of competition, constructive competition. And uh, it's, it just posits that there's a sort of, in a sense, a kind of market competition, you know, one for the economic opportunities associated with the dramatic economic transformation that will have to happen uh, in the move to carbon neutrality. And there will be competition over kind of alliances, you know, how well do you provide finance and development aid and other types of services to developing countries and other countries, right? And uh, the, the uh, Biden just announced its international, uh, the U.S.'s international finance plan this morning. Uh, China has been talking about green BRI, but um, uh, arguably doesn't have uh, sufficient detail on that quite, quite yet. But there could be a uh, positive competition on that. There's no guarantee that it goes in a positive direction, right? If, if one, uh, you know, let's say China does not stop financing coal and uh, developing countries are asking for it, then what happens, right? If, uh, if people aren't, aren't uh, using the, the green finance that comes from other places. And so, uh, and, and I, I think the other area is just this competition for, for reputation, you know, who's the kind of leader, who's the, the legitimate, has the legitimate form of, of governance and these, these types of things. And so, um, we're already seeing that type of competition pushed, maybe arguably for some more uh, climate action or some modest climate pronouncements. Jonas, you've written a lot, particularly about the economic side of this and and how you know U.S. and Chinese companies particularly compete in the clean tech space. Can you can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so I mean, I think from my perspective, this idea of competition goes back a long way, right? Like even under Obama, there was a lot of talk about who was going to win the clean energy race. I think a lot of the sort of competition rhetoric was a political tool to motivate domestic audiences to buy into these policies. And so we've been using that competition tool for a really long time. If you look at Biden's infrastructure plan, China is within the first six sentences or something. So I think we're using that again. So this kind of competition tool is there. But all along, we've also had a lot of collaboration between firms sort of under the hood and actually, you know, rising to that challenge and providing the goods that we need in order to make progress on uh, these issues. And that doesn't, uh, hasn't really changed, right? So even though we talk even more about competition now, I think we're just as entangled in some ways as we were um, back then. And I think the infrastructure bill actually is a good example. So if we want to you know, take this morning's announcement seriously and have our emission, but in the next nine years, um, we'll have to do a lot of work. And in the short term, a lot of work will uh, require buying things that are currently still made in China, solar panels, batteries, um, 
components for wind turbines and so on. And so that requires co collaboration with China, either by us being a customer or our firms buying components from China. And that in some ways will have to coexist with the competition rhetoric that's coming out of, uh, out of politics. And so I think that's where I think in principle, the two are actually very compatible. Uh, we can use the competition to make us work harder and we can use the collaboration to then actually fulfill these goals. Um, where I have concerns is when this competition rhetoric kind of turns into protectionist policy that then makes achieving these goals harder because just because we put uh, tariffs on it doesn't mean we all of a sudden will get all of the manufacturing uh, infrastructure domestically. And we've seen this in the past. We've had solar tariffs for a while and we haven't really seen a whole you know, wholesale movement of the global solar industry to the US domestically. And so I think there's some limits to what we can do um, to radically change that. And so I think that's sort of where the tension lies. If I can just pick up on what Alex and Jonas um, mentioned, I mean, I think that the US can really compete in a rap with China on climate change is exactly overseas support and investment and development for developing countries in particular to transition to a low carbon or zero carbon economy. And so we know that right now about 120 national governments have pledged to decarbonize by 2050 or later. And I think a major question is how are they gonna get there if not, uh, if they're not able to develop their own domestic clean energy uh, systems. And so I think this is an area where, where the United States can act with China exactly as Jonas said, but we're going to need to collaborate and cooperate with China because we simply don't have the manufacturing base in order to outcompete China. China already manufactures more than two-thirds of solar PV. They manufacture 99% of electric buses. In terms of electric passenger vehicles, they're also dominating. And I think something like six out of the 10 uh, wind turbine companies are Chinese. And so I just don't think that the U.S. in the short term can compete on that end. But I've heard Jonas in his and, and also in, in Jonas's about, well, this is where this collaborative framework could be really useful. The United States should try to compete more on the R&D and the innovation side, but then partner with China on the manufacturing side. But then, I mean, I think in particular in terms of overseas investments, the United States should absolutely be trying to compete. Uh, China is, um, in terms of their investments through its two major development banks, supporting something like 75% uh, of its funding is going to fossil fire projects. And that's fundamentally incompatible with a 1.5 degree world. And so I think this is an area where the United States should actively try to engage China and try to try to compete. Yeah, I think with China, I mean, obviously, sometimes there's this disconnect between these high level goals and then the actual incentives on the ground, right? And, and of course, we heard President Xi this morning at the climate summit talk about support being given to um, these peaking pioneers, right? Is this term that they're using now to talk about provinces that are gonna have to peak early, right? Peak before the national 2030 um, goal. C could you all talk a little bit about what you see really happening at the local level? You know, are there innovative solutions um, at the subnational level in the U.S. or China, you know, and that we can be learning from here, either you know, cooperatively or things that that each of the two countries are doing individually. Angel, is this something you look at in your work on subnational? Yes, absolutely. Sorry, I was I just got a message that my audio is choppy, and I think it might be my internet, and so looking around at what applications I can close. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, so a major strand of my research is looking at the role of bottom-up actors. So subnational government cities and provinces, as well as private sector actor actors to fill in 
the emissions gap. So between national government policies and where we need to go by way of emissions cuts in order to contain global temperature rise. And so for China in particular, what we found in our last report that was launched in 2019 is that some national actors, so um, provinces that participate in of peaking pioneer cities that was established in the 2014 Obama Xi summit. So it was a coalition of 28 US cities and states along with Chinese cities and provinces committing to, to adopt peaking, peaking years in line with uh, the, the, uh, the Chinese own national government target of peaking before 2030. And so there was also as part of that uh, initiative uh, commitments to release emissions inventories to share best practices and exchange around uh, low carbon practices. And so we evaluated those commitments and we found that um, if these cities and provinces in China are able to actually achieve their peaking targets, then that could lead to an additional 50 million tons on top of the national government targets in 2030. So it can help to narrow the gap. And that's just, I think, the tip of the iceberg because peaking can mean a lot of different things, right? And so uh, that's, I think, what is really exciting. And I was so excited to hear President Xi Jinping specifically mention the role of these pioneers from localities to sectors and companies. So recognizing in line and in, in the spirit of the Paris Agreement that action needs to happen at every level, very local, all the way up to the national government. And so the recognition officially that they're absolutely critical to mobilizing progress and implementation towards the carbon neutrality target, I think that's really encouraging because it provides more specifics and account at the level where policies are actually being implemented on the ground. And so um, I think that's also really exciting. And then later this month and in the coming months, we'll start to see the specific peaking plans that provinces are being asked to develop. So the national government, as part of the 14th five-year plan, has asked all of the provinces to provide these peaking to get more specifics. And they've established a set of indicators that provinces have to specify. So exactly what level should emissions peak at and what Will be the carbon intensity of that trajectory. And so that's, that's I think, something exciting. And also, I mean, even though the national bilateral relationship was really stalled during the last four years, this is an area that was still quite active during the Trump administration. And so in 2018, for example, former governor of California, Jerry Brown, in collaboration with former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, hosted this Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco that brought together thousands of subnational and private sector counterparts uh, from China and the US to talk about two sides. And so Jerry Brown signed something like a dozen or so memorandums of understanding with Chinese counterparts on zero emissions vehicles, on emissions trading. Uh, so California has had their AB32, their national carbon trading scheme. China has launched their national scheme. So lots of different um, frameworks for collaborating, and those have been very active. And so I think that's one of the, the high points that is often forgotten when we talk about there being no action on the national level from the, la from the last four years. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, from my perspective here in California, you know, Angel's already referenced uh, uh, Jerry Brown's actions, and you see a tremendous amount of uh, California-China uh, collaboration. It's been going on for uh, quite a long time. And, you know, the, the subnational action could not be more important. Federal action is extremely important, but the action on the local level is where the rubber meets the road, right? Each place is going to have different uh, energy mixes, different economic opportunities, and the way they shift to carbon neutrality is going to be different. And so 
we've in California, we've seen for many years now this effort to move forward on uh, towards uh, uh, lowering carbon emissions and then now to, to carbon neutrality. And so uh, it's very important to see those details. And, um, you know, people who aren't in the environment area may not be aware that just uh, for many years now, there's there's a broad network of people, which all four of us are, are part of both on the US and the Chinese side and Euro Europeans and other people from other countries who are uh, you know, funded by uh, foundations and other uh, funding sources, uh, working with NGOs and civil society organizations, kind of working together on very specific problems. And, uh, and have, we've all built relationships with people. You know, they're very impressive people on the Chinese side who work on this. And so, you know, so these days, because of the tensions, you see some of the, these headlines and op-eds about how, you know, uh, like the, the recent HR McMaster thing in, in Politico just sort of said, you know, when she says something on climate, he does the opposite, right? And so, but from our perspective, you know, we're getting calls from people who have just been tasked with some issue and you know you work with them on very specific things that they're trying to solve a problem and and so you you realize that there's there's real uh, genuine work going on uh, on all of this yeah i think it's you know obviously california has played a really important role um in pushing ambition right within the united states and we see this certainly um within the you know electric vehicle regulations and a, a whole wide variety of climate policy Jonas, are there examples within China as well where we see China, you know, really sort of pushing ambition uh, globally? Well, one, I think, obvious example would be the global auto sector, right? So, um, you know, the European car companies were not particularly in love with electric vehicles until recently, and the Americans certainly wasn't e weren't either, you know, aside from Tesla. And it was really China's domestic market and the huge market share um, you know, or, or sort of the, the market opportunity that they had there um, that, that changed their calculation um, during a time, I think, when uh, there wasn't a lot of push in the United States. And so um, in the US, you had sort of a, a, like a split. There was a coalition of car companies that were going with California to try to kind of keep pushing for stricter uh, standards and sort of greening the auto sector here. And there was a coalition of car companies that were pushing back together with the Trump administration. During that time, you had the European car companies sort of getting on board with the Chinese goals and really changing strategy and going all in on electric cars. And in the end, I think a lot of that was about their relationship to China, not actually about domestic uh, you know, considerations in Europe or in the United States. And so GM kind of switching, I mean, in sort of a, you know, a head turn 180 right after the election, um, coming on board with electric vehicle goals for the US, in some ways, I think was also in preparation or, you know, because of China's role and the need for EV to develop these cars to continue to be competitive there. And so I think, you know, if we talk about leadership in this sort of abstract way, we sometimes miss that there's very concrete regulatory actions that countries take that then have a huge impact on how the industry develops and, and how carbon intensive it will be. Great, thank you. Um, you know, now that we are in this potentially new era of, of US-China engagement on climate and, and the door has been opened with the joint statement and, and the summit today, uh, I'd like to ask you all a bit about some of the work you've done putting forward ideas for US-China cooperation and in some recent papers you've written. So Angel, 
I know, for example, you argued for a US-China Green New Deal. Could you talk a little bit about what that is? What would that look like? Well, I was personally really inspired by Markey and uh, AOC's proposal for the US to have a Green New Deal that um, focused the economy with the environment and social. I think that it really invigorated a lot of conversations and disparate, disparate dialogues and policies that were happening and, and trying to put them together. Um, so I think in particular, since COVID-19 has just enormous impact on economic growth, that there's a major question of recovery and how much will rebound and come back to potentially pre-COVID levels after we've had this historic summer percent drop in emissions. And so one of the ideas, and, and I should mention my co-author on the paper is Debbie Seligson, who teaches at Villanova University. And so one of the ideas that, that we had is um, this is actually an area where the U.S. and China could try to come up with a framework on uh, Green New Deal ideas together and actually operation on this particular concept could actually be really beneficial for both sides. And so, for example, um, the Biden administration has talked about uh, this at the core and specifically thing in underrepresented uh, communities and, 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 and earmarking specific funds for uh, for them. And so I think um, certainly in the Chinese context, there has been a huge transition of work in, in the heavy polluting sector and um, trying to reskill them into uh, clean, uh, clean energy sectors. And so I think that that's one area that is a major question for the United States and um, trying to learn a little bit from the Chinese example and how they're doing that. Uh, China has been deliberately drawing down the number of employment opportunities in the coal and steel sectors to deal with the oversupply issue and to respond to environmental pollution concerns. And so they've been really ramping down the number of jobs filling them and uh, giving them direct um, payments, for example, to because of this risk of being displaced. And so they've, they've pledged something like 100 billion RMB, so around 4.3 billion US dollars to aid workers in this um, in this transition. And so I think that that uh, this this um, reskilling is is a core part of where the US and China, I think, could really learn from each other. And so that's um, one of the, the, the core components of our recommendation for um, how collaboration could really work between the two sides of a Green New Deal. Thank you, that's really interesting. Um, and I think that actually directly relates to what Jonas has written about, um, which is that you know, the urgency of emissions reductions leaves few alternatives to the current division of labor in global clean energy supply chains. So what does this mean for U.S. competitiveness and, and the desire to bring clean energy jobs back to this country? I think it's a question of timing. I think all of this can work. I think we just have to be re realistic about the time frame on which these different things can, can happen, right? So if we think again about the sort of infrastructure bill and what we need to do um, to you know, get solar and wind into the ground and to electrify the transportation sector to get anywhere close to where we need to be at the end of the decade, Chinese products will play a big role. I don't think that that means we shouldn't also invest in these industries and try to figure out um, if we can support parts of these industries here that so far are not very well supported, right? And so in doing that, we can actually learn from China, right? So what was critical in the build out of China's manufacturing industry in these sectors was financing and a financial sector that was willing to fund manufacturing. We don't have that here in the same way. And so we can learn from China 
and sort of China's lessons of the past and trying to compete with China on these things while also in the short run collaborating with China and working with China on, on you know, meeting these goals. And so I think we should do both. We should um, be realistic that we are in this division of labor that we need for now and also try to shift it a little bit and, um, and make sure that we do well uh, in other areas that are not so well supported yet. Um, I think the third aspect of this is also that we've been talking a lot about manufacturing. I think there is a political need to talk about manufacturing. I think we associate it with 1950s union jobs. I think there's sort of a romantic idea about it too. Um, but we also have service sector jobs in these industries, right? And I think there's a lot more of them. They will be here a lot faster. And I think they haven't been getting the political credit that they deserve. And so I think the third thing we need to do is while we continue to buy Chinese solar panels in order to meet our 2030 targets and try to figure out how to build a domestic solar industry, Let's also talk about the jobs that we get tomorrow from construction, from installation, from maintenance, blue collar jobs that you can't outsource that are here. And maybe we should have a conversation about how we can make those jobs better jobs. Should they be unionized? How can we make sure they're well paid? Um, those are conversations we can have today. And they are important conversations regardless of where the product comes from that we install. Yeah, absolutely, great points. Um, Alex, I want to pick up on something you've argued for, which is that to meet China's carbon neutrality goal, you know, we need to see a ban on coal. But of course, coal use in China is on the rise again. Um, so do you see any signals within China that such a ban is feasible? You know, how do you interpret President Xi's statements about coal that we heard this morning? Right. Yeah. So good timing for this question. Right. Yeah. So the, the piece I, I wrote for the Penn Project was really an attempt to sort of say, well, what's the most extreme, you know, if you were just to say, how could we get rid of coal? What would the pushback to that be and explore that a little bit, right? So if you're interested in that, you can take a look at the, the paper that I wrote for this, uh, this project. Uh, but as Joanna referenced this morning, you know, probably the news out of uh, President Xi's uh, comments this morning was his comments about uh, coal, right? So what did he say exactly? He said, China will strictly control coal-fired power generation projects. That's one which suggests there will be some continued building of coal-fired power plants. Then he said, well, there will be, uh, China will strictly limit the increase in coal consumption over the, the rest of the 14th five-year plan, which suggests you'll have, you know, you'll have increase in coal consumption. And then phasing it down or gradually slow, reducing uh, coal consumption in the 15th five-year plan. Uh, and so, so that's, that's um, uh, those signals are all, uh, so uh, th there have been a lot of comments that this political signal is very important. And I, I think it is, right? It's the first time they've sort of on this sort of global stage talked about phasing out coal or phasing down coal, I guess it is, is the term that was used. And so that's the start again. You know, we don't know it's the initial signal and then all of the usual caveats apply. What happens next? How quickly will the next steps happen, right? So we're just going to be watching for the next things to happen. But uh, nothing was said today about overseas finance of fossil fuels. Uh, there was language in last week's joint statement about how the U.S. and China were going to work collectively on this. And so uh, what will China do on this uh, front now? And then we're just going to have to kind of monitor all of the things we know are part of the Chinese legal and policy infrastructure that uh, we think are not great in, in terms of carbon emissions. Right. So. I'm looking these days at the, the National uh, Carbon uh, Emissions Trading System, and uh, there have been a lot of critiques already about 
the problems with that system, right? It's not a cap. It's uh, it incentivizes more efficient coal, but it doesn't really incentivize switching to renewables, right? So there's lots of ways that that system could be fixed so that it uh, helped to accelerate the phase out of coal rather than sort of just making coal more efficient, which is what it does right now, right? So, and there's lots of other policies like that that are probably too protective of coal. And so, uh, so we have some signals and then it's just a matter of what comes next. Great, thank you. Um, so of course, you know, the summit today was is really thought of as sort of the first big climate event for this year, right? And of course, we're all looking towards COP26, which of course was supposed to have been held last year and, and was um, deferred a year due to the pandemic. And we're hoping, of course, that it can still go forward. Um, but so there's a huge agenda, right? That the UK and Italy and others are really lining up um, looking toward COP26. I'd love to hear from you all, you know, what is sort of the lowest hanging fruit that should be addressed first? What are the major sticking points? You know, where should the major diplomatic efforts um, that are gonna be ongoing throughout the next few months, where should they really focus? Angel, do you wanna start us off? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the one thing that we're all waiting for is to hear specifically from China what their enhanced ambition will be. And so as Alex mentioned, countries should have submitted that by last year, but as of January, there were only less than 50 countries that have actually submitted these enhanced ambition pledges. And exactly as Alex also began his comments, because of this pledge and review cycle, we really need to know what those are so that we take and understand how far we have left to go before the official exercise happens in 2023. So I think the for me, the lowest is for China to come out with that plan. And specifically, we need to be looking for increased ambition. So the 2060 carbon neutrality goal actually looks. So some of the pieces that for me are still missing are an uh, increased um, target for non-fossil energy. So it's um, targeted at only 20% um, uh, currently in, in the, the, the Paris NDC from, from and in the, in the 13th and of your plan. So most analysts say that that should be increased to at least 25% uh, before 2030. And so, or even earlier, 2025. And then others have said one of the other pieces could be moving the peaking year from 2030 earlier. So most Chinese analysts and modelers that I've spoken to 2025, if not 2023. So I think that's another piece that really um, useful to have the Chinese become more specific and would indicate that they're enhancing the ambition of their initial Paris pledge that is consistent with the 60 carbon neutrality goal. Up on Alex's point, I think just phasing out coal completely and having a clear plan on all of those metrics that Alex mentioned. So a cap on coal consumption, and that would be really useful in a plan not building new coal-fired power plants because we know that China is still building out new coal-fired capacity. So those would be my low-hanging fruits. Thanks, Angel. Uh, Alex, Sirians, Alex, go ahead. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would say, um, really accelerate the deployment of the in the areas where we already have technologies that are ripe for deployment. So, uh, you know, in the power sector, uh, maximizing wind and solar uh, deployment in transportation, accelerating electrification, move, move to electrification, and then in buildings, you know. Uh, electrifying buildings, essentially the heating and the, and the you know the water heating and the uh, and these types of things, and those are areas where we have pretty good technologies. And the price structure 
uh, you know, for for example, in power, my understanding is that now the the cost of uh, wind and solar is cheaper than uh, incremental cost. You know, building new wind and solar in some places is cheaper than uh, the incremental cost of using incremental coal. So it seems to me that it would be a no brainer to just build as as fast as you can, right? It, um, renewables are such a small uh, percentage of of um, the uh, energy sectors, uh, electricity sectors in both countries that you just need to massively uh, go all out. And then uh, invest in the research in the other areas like like ind industrial emissions reduction, uh, aircraft, shipping, these types of things, and, and make sure we can accelerate the movement to um, technologies that are commercially viable. Jonas, any thoughts on this? And maybe not low-hanging fruit and maybe not directly related to COP, but I think in this, you know, it's been like an interesting period because we've been going through this recession related to the pandemic and we've all been spending huge amounts of money on economic recovery. And this is going to keep going, right? I mean, we're not over the hill and there'll be more stimulus packages across all of the G20 economies um, and the developing world. We've been collecting data on how countries have been spending this money since the beginning of the pandemic and so far only six percent of fiscal spending for economic recovery has been going towards activity that actually reduces emissions and so i think there's a huge opportunity as we try to rebuild and recover uh, to expand that and do all of the things that angel and alex just talked about because we need to get money into the economy in many parts of the world and there doesn't seem to be kind of a concerted effort um, compared to 10 years ago when we had a big recession we we're only spending about a third of what we did then uh, and we're 10 years further down the problem. And so in preparation for COP and the future, I think that would be uh, a way of spending money we're spending anyway, but doing it more deliberately on, uh, on climate. Thank you. Uh, I'm gonna start to turn to some of the audience questions and I appreciate everyone who's already been submitting your questions. And, and if you haven't, and you've been waiting to ask that question, please go ahead and do so. And I'll try to get as many in as possible before we have to wrap up. Um, I first wanted to go to a question from Weyla Gong for all the panelists and particularly to, um, to Dr. Xu on citizen science. She asked what kind of policy opportunities might emerge to international environmental agencies and, and non-state actors in facilitating US-China climate cooperation if we think the US-China relations of, you know, think of it from a dual track diplomacy, both the intergovernmental and the, the non-governmental or, or track two perspective. Are there any important opportunities you think for sort of the track two space right now? Angel, you wanna take a stab at that? Yeah. I will try, this is a really good question. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think that um, it's a new ball game because when national governments engage together on climate change again, that just opens up a world of opportunities for even more trickle down engagement to the local levels to non-state actors to international environmental agencies so i'm really excited about Joel. do i have any specific ideas on what can be done now i mean i definitely think the data sharing piece but this is what i focus a lot of uh, my efforts on i mean i think there could be a huge and um, so one of the conversations that I'm engaged in is the UN Secretary General has put on the top of the UN's agenda, a digital transformation. And so I think there's a huge potential for digital technologies and this whole uh, fourth industrial revolution space to accelerate the pace that 
in order to reach our, our climate goals, in particular, these peaking targets and carbon neutrality goals. And I think that that's one area that is underexplored. Uh, how can the both, both sides really learn from each other on and engage each other on this digital space? So China, on one hand, has really also beating the United States when it comes to artificial intelligence technologies, and they are experimenting in many different areas on um, digital, digitally enabled solutions. And so I think this is an area where the U.S. could create and work together with China and learn from the various examples. So, um, for example, Alibaba, their environmental cloud cities now are working and using this technology to implement um, traffic cameras and monitoring uh, technology to monitor real-time traffic patterns. And uh, that has an application to help save in a fuel, for example, and to uh, make sure that cars and vehicles are not idling and combusting more fuel, for example. And uh, so that's like very innovative. Um, uh, Hangzhou, for example, is one of the cities in China that's been innovating and using this type of technology. They call it their city brain project where they're implementing these technologies to better monitor traffic patterns. Uh, Beijing has had partner BM, for example, to develop uh, real-time monitoring air pollution. And Beijing's MEP, for example, now has its own low-cost sensor network, 11,000 sensors. I think they mentioned to me last time I visited them throughout the city to, to get really micro-level data on air pollution. This is one area where there could be a collaboration because um, we really, as we've said here, the, the urgency is there and we need to, as quickly as possible, try to make headway on this problem. And I think technology is an area that, so it's like not just the clean tech, not the solar PV and not the wind, but really the digitally enabled um, solutions on data, on machine learning, artificial intelligence, where China has a distinct competitive advantage that we can use to accelerate in the climate change and the sustainability space. So those conversations I think are not really happening uh, yet. And I think that that's one really collaborate. Thanks, Alex, did you wanna jump in on this? I don't know if this is directly responsive to the, the question, but I, I would love to see some track to uh, dialogue on environmental justice and just transition and jobs transition issues. I think uh, in some sense, because it's it's gonna be a difficult question for uh, issue for everybody as we're trying to do this. And in some ways, these types of things always tend to fall to the end of the list. And so by having uh, more projects and more initiatives on this, it can help to elevate them on, on the, the policy agenda just to make sure it doesn't get forgotten and, and uh, given short shrift in the effort to focus on mitigation or other aspects of climate uh, policy. Thank you. Um, and I wanted to turn to another great question um, from Dale Jiajun Wen, who asks, with production-based instead of consumption-based accounting, the peaking pioneers can simply outsource their energy supply or you know, high carbon industrial sector to less developed areas, which wouldn't of course help the overall picture. So are there policies or new accounting rules you would propose to prevent this sort of you know, greenwashing or, or leakage, I would call it? Jonas, did you wanna to touch on that? Sure, so, so I guess um, just to sort of explain this a, a little more, the idea basically is that if you outsource your sort of polluting industrial sectors to a developing economy, you look great because your emissions go down and you've basically just shifted the emissions to a different country. And so shouldn't it be that we count the emissions where we consume them? Um, and so if we import these products back in, they should count towards our target, not someone else's. That's a great idea in principle. I think in practice is incredibly complicated to do and probably sort of 
too complicated to do. But it does bring up this problem that different countries have very different opportunities to participate in this clean energy revolution. And that outside of the Belgian road, there isn't a great global green financing institution that will help countries uh, fund the transition in the developing world. And so I think one of the things that we can do um, to avoid this is to uh, push China uh, to green the Belt and Road Initiative, but also maybe to either work with China or to create an alternative institution with the Europeans to sort of nudge China competitively, to create more financing opportunities for developing economies so that they can green their energy supply and so that the carbon difference between whether we make things here or in Vietnam or in Sub-Saharan Africa is a lot less big than it is today. And so I think that's a very fruitful uh, path for us to sort of figure out how to go and uh, would address all sorts of development issues at the same time. Great, thank you. Um, I wanna lump a couple of questions together that get at um, specific bilateral cooperation mechanisms that we might see you know, in the next four years. Um, there's a question about any you know, particular policies or, or agreements that you might think are politically survivable. Uh, to spur U.S.-China cooperation, particularly in climate tech R&D innovation, you know, given the current rhetoric in the United States. Um, and then also a question specifically on the likelihood of reestablishing the U.S.-China climate change working group, um, which of course Secretary Kerry had been instrumental in actually um, getting started back in 2013. So now that he's back in this position, you know, what, what do we think? Like, what are, what are the likely um forums or mechanisms you know or agreements we might see going forward does anyone want to take that i nominate Jonas. oh yeah i can take a crack at it but i, I sure, love to ahead, hear what other people um say so I, i'm not going to answer on the tech part so I, I i will nominate Jonas for that that piece also um but one thing, one thing I might suggest is that, I mean, the nature of the question was oriented towards federal cooperation. And, you know, we've talked about non-federal or non-state you know state to state level cooperation being really important. And it, the fact of the matter is a lot of that continued even during the period when we had an administration that didn't was uh, firmly opposed to climate change. And so in some sense, the survivability question is about diversifying the channels, not relying on the state to state, right? Just make you know, the federal government could help fund, provide more funds for other types of actors to cooperate and support the universities and state level entities and, uh, you know, help work with foundations and, and these sorts of groups. And I think to me that feels survivable and would be less uh, subject, you know, if an administration comes in four years from now, as opposed to climate change, federal action will stop. I mean, I think there's just no way around that. Um, or, you know, there, there's plenty of things I can do to stop it, and but not if it, it's elsewhere, right? Great. Um, and I would also just put in a plug if, you know, in terms of federal level technology cooperation for the, the U.S.-China Clean Energy Research Center, hopefully continuing, that's uh, a program that's almost at the end of its 10-year lifespan and is something that I think has been able to uh, survive, you know, actually different um, different political administrations. So it'll be interesting to see if that's able to continue. Um, there's an interest. Oh, go ahead, Yanis. No, it just seems like I mean we're talking about very different things in this technology space um, in relation to how kind of commercializable things are. And right now, I think there's a lot of tension also in the kind of scientific collaboration between the two countries. 
Um, I would hope that that is something we can, um, you know, encourage again and make easier for people to get visas to travel to work with research labs on both sides. Because in this space, I think there are a lot of things we haven't worked out, right? We talk a lot about wind, solar, all the stuff we're using today already. Um, there are all these applications in industrial decarbonization that we haven't even worked out. And so there's scientific work that needs to be done that is not immediately commercializable. And so there isn't sort of the same competitive conflict there. And so figuring out ways that we can um, get this sort of researcher to researcher work um, back in the, you know, or, or, or let it continue at least, I think that would be really helpful. Uh, you have a book coming out on this, Joanna, no? Is there maybe? <laughs> No, I think it's interesting. I, I mean, I think it used to be the technical cooperation was the least politically sensitive, right? Because it's just a bunch of scientists. And, and I, I think that's obviously changed, you know, in the light of current um, security concerns. Um, I want to shift for a minute to the United States situation and the, the domestic political environment here. Um, you know, today, of course, was a really significant day in U.S. climate policy, really ambitious targets announced. But not a lot of clarity about how the Biden administration tends to move forward, except, you know, maybe through some more executive orders. And I think a lot of potential pushback now coming, right? Um, particularly, you know, we saw back in Texas in February, um, the governor, you know, blamed wind and solar power for the blockouts, right? And, and I think there's a lot of, um, concern, you know, within the United States, uh, that, you know, maybe climate goals are, are not the, the priority, particularly coming out of the pandemic, right? And the recovery. Can anyone speak to the US political environment and, and you know, what we think the likelihood is of real ambitious climate action in the United States? Angel? Yeah, I mean, I just recently came back to the US myself after Asia for a while. So yeah, I mean- uh, on hand, Came at the right time though. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No, it, I mean, I think if um, the election had gone a different way, I would have lobbied to stay in Asia. But yeah, I mean, I think that it's really exciting. I mean, reading the details of President Biden's infrastructure bill and the amount that he's investing in infrastructure, which has just been so badly needed and has been underinvested in the decade in the United States. I think that that's uh, really encouraging. And um, yeah, it is interesting, the political pushback. So I was asked to testify in the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources in February, and um, it was it was really surprising to hear a lot of the same economic arguments were being made for oh well America really desire and want cheap oil and and cheap gas, and so isn't that an argument for not um, implementing the climate change policies? But I think that um, now you look at the economics, and Alex touched on this a little bit, but I mean it's just so clear. I was on a panel last week where there are some folks from energy innovation and they were presenting new research looking at the levelized cost of energy for solar and wind versus coal. And what they found is that um, it's not only more expensive to uh, build uh, new coal fire power plants, but to just even keep them still operating. And so that's how cost competitive now solar and wind is in, in terms of levelized cost of, of electricity. And so that to me was a really shocking statistic. And um, so, so there were the argument that um, looking forward and, and estimating in the next five years, 94%, um, so virtually every coal fire power plant in China is gonna be more expensive to run than to actually replace with new renewable power plants. And so I would be really curious to understand 
whether or not the same economic supply in the United States. And I would imagine that it would be very similar because coal only comprises about a fifth of our electricity supply. And so uh, to me, that would be um, one way to try to convince uh, the, the opponents of climate policy uh, is to say, well, look at the, the economics and, and the picture is, is, has rapidly changed. And for example, all of the new um, electricity that came online, the capacity that was built was in renewables. And so, um, I mean, I just feel like the global balance has really shifted. For me, that would be one way to get more political saliences is, is really uh, trying to know the case um, on the economic side that it simply uh, would be in the United States uh, politically, political and economic advantage to invest in these technologies and, and, and in climate policy. Um, so yeah, to me, that that is some of the, the dynamics and arguments that, that I think could, we could really try to uh, promote. Thank you. Alex? I'd just add, add a little bit on, on that. That was a great uh, answer. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I like the way that the Biden administration has been framing this, right, as about opportunity. And certainly one of the strategies is to spread the, the benefits broadly enough that and quickly enough that you get some shift in just the, the balance of the interest uh, groups. And it's going to it's going to vary by area. So, you know, for example, like in the area of transportation, like how quickly can you get people into electric vehicles? It'll depend on how quickly you can build out charging infrastructure. But, uh, you know, there's a lot that can be done if they can do it quickly. Hopefully you you fundamentally change something. You know, you get the subsidies for electric vehicles. You know, my colleague, uh, Ann Carlson, who's a law professor at UCLA, has gone, just become uh, recently become general counsel at uh, NHTSA, so is working on transportation planning. Example of another climate expert who's gone into uh, the administration and is working on policies that will help us get uh, more uh, uh, climate-friendly uh, cars out, out on the market. And and so, you know, ideally, ob obviously, that we could somehow shift the broader politics so that we didn't have so much opposition to climate change. But uh, speaking more realistically, I think in all of these little areas, can we shift the dynamics enough that we get a little a little uh, sustainability on this. Yeah, it's also worth noting that if we look at the past, so we've had this sort of economic framing coming in under Obama, climate as sort of economic policy. Now we have a framing that sort of economic policy and we're falling behind in global competitiveness. So we're kind of adding layers of argumentation basically to, to sell climate policy. But if you look at so where we've historically installed wind and solar in this country, I mean, most of the wind installations in this country have been in Republican states, right? So America is actually very pragmatic once the economics work out a certain way. I mean, people in Texas didn't kind of oppose it, even though the politics were different um, around climate policy. And so, you know, building on what, what Angel has said, I think we are at sort of a point where the economics are changing very quickly. And I'm hopeful that that, that will allow us to really make a difference fast because I don't think people are irrationally going to uh, cling on to things if we, if we look at how the sector has developed historically. Great, thank you. Um, I wanna take some of our you know, remaining time to ask you all a question, I think given the timeliness of this issue and the fact that you know, clearly policymakers right now are probably trying to decide the next move on, on a lot of these things, particularly with respect to the US-China relationship. So, you know, if each of you had five minutes or I'll say maybe three to four minutes, given our time, maybe three minutes uh, with 
either John Kerry or Xi Jinping, right, his counterpart in China, what would you say to them? Uh, you know, so you can either speak to the, the U.S. side, the Chinese side, or, or both if you'd like. And I'd love to hear from each of you on this. Who'd like to kick us off? Angel, go ahead. I can start. So I would probably speak to John Kerry and just say that I think it's really important to be really humble and to recognize that a lot of trust has in the United States. And as many panelists have said in the course of this conversation, that um, the United States, it's not just a foregone conclusion that they can just decide between a quick shift in administration to just be now the global hegemon when it comes to climate again and to lead and, and that everyone will want the United States to assume that leadership role. And so and, I, you know, John Kerry is, is also very expert in this. And I'm not saying that he's going in like a bull in a China shop and saying, oh, back everyone step aside. But to me, I think um, that uh, if, if he if he sits down and he listens and he hears the concerns of other countries and and also tries to, to learn from what everyone has done over the last four years, I think that'll really be in restoring uh, trust and faith that the United States is not just here for uh, the next four that they really are committed to try to put in a, a framework in place that will actually have staying and lasting power. And as uh, someone asked in the question, survivability, because I think that that's really critical to really making the Paris Agreement work. As our law professor said, it's this bottom-up pledge and review type of system. And it, it just doesn't, it doesn't work the same way as um, the Kyoto Protocol, for example, worked um, a, a more than a decade ago. And so to me, that would be my one piece of be humble and listen. Thanks, Angel. Yanis, go ahead. Let's go ahead. Yeah, I would. So, you know, historically, we've used the climate relationship and with China for things that were not really related to cli climate, right? So we've either used it as leverage. Um, a lot of these trade wars with China and renewable energy were really not about renewable energy. They weren't about solar. I mean, the Trump administration didn't care about solar, but solar is a very salient industry that gives you a lot of public attention. And so if you're going to fight a trade war, may as well pick an industry that people pay attention to. And so we've used sort of climate related things as leverage over other things in the past. We've also in the past used the climate relationship to open up conversation for areas that maybe were more difficult. We had this joint interest. And so we use the climate relationship to build a relationship and then use it to talk about more difficult things. And I think if I talk to both of them right now, I would try to convince them to try to isolate the climate relationship as much as possible. I think we don't have a lot of time. I think the problem is very serious. I think there are lots of things going on in the US-China relationship and in the relationship between China and many other parts of the world right now. And so if we can try to isolate this for the sort of the, the good of humanity and not try to use that relationship to also fulfill another purpose, I think we have a much greater chance at actually getting something done. And so that would be my ask is to not load on all these other issues that would just make it really, really difficult to move ahead. Alex? So my, my response is in a little bit of tension with, with Jonas's in, in the sense that I, I, um, I feel like um, on the cooperative side, I think we should be willing to uh, learn from China where it's appropriate. But I think where there are uh, areas of conflict, um, even in the climate context, not be afraid to, to engage with those things. I only say that because, you know, I, I teach a more general class on China and the international legal order now. And our students and, and I are just sort of grappling with, well, how do you 
deal with all these diverse issues with with China. And I think it's important that just it's a recognition that the future, the coming years will be met with uh, the two countries kind of meeting in in lots of areas where there are just dis disagreements about how things are done. And it's important to air those things and to uh, push back where necessary and to work together uh, where, where appropriate, right? And um, I, I think it's it's an idea of just approaching this pragmatically, but recognizing that we shouldn't be afraid to shy away from the differences and engage those things. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, and I want to push you a little further on that because, you know, clearly this is a really um, difficult time in US-China relations and there's a lot of tough issues on the table that could really, um, I think, could spiral, right? And and we could, we could a month from now, you know, this, this summit may have not have been able to happen, right? I mean, depending on what continues to happen on a whole variety of issues. So, I mean, do you think that there could be something in the human rights security space that could derail, you know, this sort of track that's been carved out right now for climate? I'd love to hear what Jonas has to say on this, but, you know, I, I mean, I guess some of the issues that have come up in the media, for example, you know, and you referenced this on, a, on an event we did earlier this morning, uh, for example, the issue of forced labor in solar panels in, in Xinjiang, you know, that seems like an easy one for the U.S. to say, look, we we don't we, we want to make sure we comply with our human rights norms as well as achieve climate goals. So we won't source from from those particular panels, for example, maybe on more difficult is on trade. You know, do you maintain the solar tariffs, even though it arguably slows down deployment? But is there some way that you can craft a policy that allows you to pursue your trade goals while not? foregoing the environmental goal right through rebates somehow uh, you know i'm not a trade expert but there there are proposals out there for how you do this right and so uh so that that's in, in a sense what i mean like I, I i think these types of things and and we've also talked about this the way that security potentially could come in right like blocking certain chinese products uh, ev buses or or things like that and and to the extent that increases cost, that slows deployment for us in the in the U.S. So part of that is, I think, I think, fighting for your security interests, but also not going overboard on that. Right? There's a story to history of exagger, you know, sort of going too far sometimes and pushing. There's a tendency to push the security uh, risk assessment too far sometimes. So staying attuned to what the real risk is, I guess. Jonas, I'm, I'm going to turn it to you next, but I, I also wanted to add in, I mean, since you're now representing the European perspective on this panel, um, of course, you know, one of the biggest areas I think at risk to really escalate things, you know, would be a, uh, if the EU moves forward with its carbon border adjustment mechanism, you know, essentially um, putting in place a climate-based trade barrier, you know, and, and in, in the United States for many years in the Congress, uh, this has come up in draft legislation, and it's sort of it's always referred to as the China provision, right, or sort of the China stopgap. Could could you speak a little bit to the, the conflict issue and particularly how you know the EU piece? Oh, the, the, you did promise surprise questions, and here they are. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like it is debated always as this sort of China provision, but I also wouldn't be surprised if China actually met the requirement. Right. I mean, I think that we sort of talk about it as if China is always the bad guy at the table, but they've actually been doing a lot of stuff. So what if we pass these things and then China actually meets the requirements? It doesn't, you know, 
doesn't get caught in the trade barrier. And so I, I'm curious how this is going to be uh, playing out both in the United States and in Europe. I think it's going to be much more fraud probably between the Europeans and the Americans um, for now than, than maybe between the Europeans and China. I think that there may be not, you know, it might not be so targeted or China might be able to get around it, I think. To um, jump back to Alex's point, I think what I was trying to say earlier was not so much that we should sort of paper over any kind of conflict in the climate relationship, but that there is enough conflict in the climate relationship that I would like to keep it separate from other things as much as possible, right? So the forced labor issue in Xinjiang, for instance, is, um, you know, it's really difficult. We don't know exactly, but it seems like it's very hard to source silicon from Xinjiang right now that isn't in some way connected to forced labor, which means we really need to build an alternative supply chain for the world for silicon, which isn't hard, right? Like we used to, America used to sell silicon to China until we got into trade battles with China. They put tariffs on it after we put tariffs on other things and then China built their own silicon supply chain. So we can do that, right? But, but if we try to sort of solve other trade disputes with China through leverage in the climate relationship, I think we're, we're asking a lot from the relationship in ways that will detract from the problems in climate that we need to solve. Yeah, I think you raised some great points, and and I agree with you that I, I think China may surprise us. You know, particularly as the uh, emissions trading scheme is really starting to ramp up, right, and is I think going to really actually start to put some pressure on um, some of the the biggest emitters that we may actually see, right? You know, some of these um, this policy would end up being you know as stringent, if not more stringent, than what we're seeing you know with the EU ETS. So. I know there's a lot of interesting conversations happening there. I think, um, you know, it's really, we're in a good, much better position um, today than we were even a few days ago on US-China engagement. I think the joint statement over the weekend really, you know, lay out the prospect of four years of enhanced engagement. It's, it's set an agenda. I think both sides are interested in this, you know, both sides have a self-interest in having this engagement. And I think the world would benefit, right? Because clearly, you know, for those of us who follow the climate negotiations, um, I, I do think the US-China relationship was fundamental to the Paris Agreement existing in the first place. Um, and COP26 is really gonna be our first big test of the, the Paris Agreement, you know, of its resilience. Um, coming out of, you know, an economic recovery. Um, and, you know, we're really, this is the time, this is the pivotal year, uh, the pivotal decade, I should say, um, for addressing climate change, if we're going to get on some of the more ambitious pathways. And COP26 really is, I think, um, the signal, right? It's, it's where countries are going to need to deliver more ambitious agreements. So, Hopefully we will see um, enhanced U.S. engagement. I really appreciate all of your thoughts on this and uh, your very insightful comments. As always, it's great to see you and I'm gonna turn it back uh, to Nitai to wrap us up. Great, thank you so much, Joanna and everyone. I really wish we had more time to, to answer everyone's questions that were just um, streaming into the Q&A, but unfortunately we're out of time. Um, the National Committee thanks Joanna, Angel, Jonas, and Alex for their thoughtful remarks. And, and we hope that the audience members who enjoyed this program will return for future National Committee programs. Thanks again to our good friends, the Penn Project on the Future of US-China Relations for partnering with us to put this important program together. We will look forward to our next collaboration. 
I also want to thank my colleagues who made this program possible. And of course, thank you to the audience for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the program and found it informative and wishing everyone a great rest of your day. Thanks, everyone. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.